Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, while China's stock market might be down, the box office is way up, some news about Hong Kong's summer film festivals, and we talk about the new Hong Kong China film, Monster Hunt. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and joining me once again from his correspondence desk on Monster Island is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello there, Paul. Um, hello there, everybody. Um, how, how's it going this week there, Paul? All right. You know, can't complain. We're uh, fortunately not too hot right now at this point in time. We're getting a lot of rain. So it's keeping things a little bit cool, but uh, some people, I think, uh, perhaps don't like the rainy weather as much as I do. I don't. I tend not to mind it. I mind the heat a lot more. But uh, I'll be taking a trip to Singapore in about a week, so I expect it to be much, much hotter. That, that's and, humid city, man, right yeah, there. It's, yeah. uh, it's our second trip, and last time we went, I want to say we went around the May time period, which wasn't too bad, but I don't know what to expect this time. I have a feeling I'm just going to be stuck in indoors in air conditioning the whole time not I, to, 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 to head outside until dawn or dusk well last year i went in uh late august actually the last weekend of august and yeah i mean it was hot as hell but you know i just sort of you know you do what you gotta do and, and cope right but a lot of people stay i was told you know a lot of people stay indoors actually in singapore anyway just like most of the year yeah. just because it's so hot yeah, it's, it was interesting because the place we were at last time, it was uh, the hotel we were at was kind of connected to this shopping area mall, and pretty much everything was like underground. You know, here in Hong Kong, we have a lot of sort of overground walkways that connect a lot of things, but there it was like all underground, so people could stay inside in the air conditioning as much as possible. So it was kind of an interesting setup. So uh, I'll report back more on my escapades in Singapore. Um, probably not in the next episode, but in the next, next episode. So likely when we do um, uh, 170, I think I'll have some things to talk about with regard to my short trip to Singapore. Um, but one thing came up this week for this week's film. So this week, a little bit, we're going to be talking about the movie Monster Hunt. And I ran into a little bit of a problem. Now, normally when I go to the cinema, I try and pick a seat that's going to position me as far away from other people as possible. <laughs> this is because I like to take notes, and in taking notes, I sometimes need a light source. Now, traditionally, I've used either my phone or sometimes a little light pen that I have, but both of them give off a significant amount of light. I mean, we have these signs that pop up at the beginning of cinemas now, at the beginning of movies that tell us, you know, please extinguish your digital light source. So I don't want to offend anybody. And I've actually seen in one case where I was in the cinema watching a movie and uh, one guy had his phone out and another patron, foreign guy, uh, Westerner, obviously, um, was like yelling at him. I mean, really loud, like, turn that thing off. And um, <clears throat> just very, very vocal about it. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to offend anybody when I do this, so I try and position myself strategically. If you're not aware of this, in Hong Kong, we have to choose our seats at the time of ticket purchase, either online or at the cinema. I know that there are still many theaters in the United States, uh, my old stomping grounds, where it's first come, first serve and kind of a free-for-all. But here we have this luxury so that we don't have to you know, deal with getting a seat and getting in and saving seats. We you know, pick the seats, and it's, it's a nice system. But I, when I'm picking the seats, I'm always looking for, okay, where can I sit where I'm not going to be bothering anybody? So this time for this film, I was doing that. I was, you know, pick, had picked a seat where I thought, okay, going to be in this place where nobody's going to, you know, not, not going to be interfering with anybody's film viewing experience while I'm taking notes. And unfortunately, 
I get into the cinema and there's a guy sits practically right next to me. He's not, you know, in the exact seat next to me, but he's like one seat over. I'm like, dude, really? You got the whole other theater, all these empty seats, and you had to pick this row, you know, right next to me. So, and I, the reason I know that he had picked it after the fact is because when I selected my seat, nobody in that row at all. It was completely barren, empty space, way in the back, and I figured nobody's going to sit there. Sure enough, there's a dude there. So I had very, very difficult time trying to note-take, uh, got very little done. And I always have a difficult time after the fact trying, to, you know, because there are things that happen. I'm thinking, okay, i got to remember that, i got to remember this, i got to remember that point. And then trying to write all that up after I get out of the cinema's always a challenge for me because more often than <laughs> not there's things i'm going to forget now our, our, our mutual friend kozo i know that he's a mad note taker he has mad note taking skills when he's watching a movie and he doesn't seem to need a light source at all i don't know how he does it i've tried this a few times just using sort of the the illumination from the screen itself and my notes are completely illegible uh, when i come out of the cinema i just can't read them so i have to have some kind of minor light source but i you know even the the note-taking pen that I have, which is supposed to be ideal for doing this kind of thing, it's really bright. And if you're, you know, sitting in a row and somebody's got that out, that's going to be distracting and it's going to be annoying you. So this is the problem of major film criticism today, I guess. I don't know how other critics deal with this kind of issue. I guess most people just write their notes up after the fact. I remember, I, w I won't mention the person in question, but I remember actually going to a movie one time with another person involved in, in Hong Kong cinema and dude practically broke out a computer. I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a laptop, but he like had these, it was a phone, but he had like all these extensions for it. And, and I was like, wow, that's some, that's some serious uh, heavy duty gear. Uh, there have been a couple times where I've tried doing it on the iPad, iPad, the iPad's way too bright and doing it on the phone itself is also really too bright. I, I found an app that let me do sort of a black background notes page, which was good because it had very low illumination. But the keypad is so small that I really have a difficult time uh, typing effectively on that. So, Well, when I was um, a film critic, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Kozo does the same thing. We just we just trust our arm, man. We just trust our wrist. Um, and when it comes out, I write in cursive. So it just when it comes out it, i mean it's still not very legible but you know at least it comes yeah, out to, i can't i can't write in a straight line to save to. my life and when i, no, when I look at that. my notes afterwards writing in a dark theater i'm like what did i write i have no idea what the what that scribble scratch is it's just yeah, it's, I, it's terrible <clears throat> i don't even look at i don't look at my notes when i write i just write it out and and most of the time when i did have to take notes it usually worked and i think it's worked Fine for Kozo. He's very rarely has to actually look at his notebook when he when he takes notes. Yeah, yeah. That that man's a machine. I've seen him do note taking. Yeah. So yeah. Ah, so well, this, this is the pit, the pity party of my note taking experience for this film. So I do <laughs> apologize if my notes are not overly extensive when we get into talking about this week's film, which is in fact going to be Monster Hunt. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But now I think it's time to throw it over to Kevin with our news for this week at the news desk. Here at the news desk, um, since we are going to be talking about Monster Hunt, but um, let's talk about box office first. Because it, it, if we're talking about Monster Hunt in China, then it's all going to be about box office. So to bring us to what happened this past weekend, we first have to talk about what happened in the first half of the year. It is July, so it means it's time to look at um, how, you know, uh, box office did in the first half of the year. We did Hong Kong a few episodes ago, and now we're talking China. According to official data released by the State Administration of Press Publication Radio, Film, and Television, that's a mouthful, total box office revenue for the first half of 2015 was at 20.4 billion renminbi. Now that's uh, 3.28 billion US dollars. Um, that apparently is a year-on-year -year increase of 48.2% from the same period um, last year. Um, to put it in perspective, and I guess I'm going to mention this number again, in 2004, the total box office um, number for the year was uh, what's only, um, uh, let me look at this, 1.5 billion renminbi. So 20 point 
um, 20 point something billion RMB from 1.5 billion RMB just 10 years ago. So this is like a huge, huge like increase, right? Um, part of it is because a uh, huge, huge success of Hollywood films in China. We're talking Fast and Furious 7, uh, Avengers, Age of Ultron, Jurassic World. All three films spoke the, broke the um, 1 billion RMB mark, which is... Um, which actually wasn't even the mark of success um, five years ago. Five years ago, your movie goes past 100 million RMB, you're already a huge hit. Um, um, for example, Fast and Furious 7 made 2.43 billion RMB. That's already the all-time box office record in China. That's doubling what was the all-time box office record. I think nearly double. Um, on the local, uh, and actually foreign films uh, had a major 50 3.2% market share uh, over the year so it took majority uh, a majority market share just like it did last year uh, in the first half year domestic films had 46.8% uh, market share with uh, 9.54 billion RMB in total revenue um, that is a year on year increase of 44% um, as opposed to uh, 53% uh, in the domestic, I mean, in the foreign films, um, unfortunately, no domestic film crossed the one billion mark. Um, instead, the top-grossing domestic film uh, so far, 2015, um, is from Vegas to Macau 2, which made uh, 974 million RMB uh, during the Lunar New Year holiday. Uh, Dragon Blade comes in at number two as with 744 million RMB. Wolf Totem comes in at number three with uh, 698 million RMB. Now, um, you might think, oh, China, are the authorities worried that, like, you know, foreign films are taking over? And yes and no, actually, because what the state administration, uh, press public, the government, what the government wants is actually total box office revenue to be up. They want to play up the appeal of the China cinema market, or the box office market, or the film exhibition market. Uh, they want to play up that appeal um, to the foreign, uh, to the Hollywood studios, to the Americans. So then, you know, China seems even more like an appeal, appealing place to market to. So they actually don't really mind that much that 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 uh, foreign films are, are, are conquering the box office because one China film group is a co-producer on Jurassic World and Fast and Furious 7 um, and two um, total box office revenue actually benefits the market as well but at the same time the Chinese authorities also set up these unofficial blackout periods um, for local films to protect local films so um, um, actually there weren't there was I don't think there was any official or unofficial blackout period in the first half of the year, except for perhaps the Lunar New Year holiday, um, and that is when you know the the largest domestic film so far this year uh, came out. And there was another. There, we're in the middle of another period right now, um, between mid July to mid August, and we'll see another period in December. And I think National Day. So those are the big, you know, so-called domestic film periods when. When your biggest releases, uh, domestic release, will come out, and 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 they'll they'll be huge hits to the box office, and they'll lift the numbers, the market share of uh, local films. Um, so, in addition to Monster Hunt, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, so far you already have Tiny Times Four making four hundred and fifty million. You have, um, uh, and again, we'll talk about this in a few minutes. Superhero spoof, Jumping Man, also making huge money. And in the second half of the year, we'll have. Um, Lost in Hong Kong uh, from director Xu Zhen, his follow-up to Lost in Thailand. We also have The Ghouls, which is uh, based on a hugely, hugely popular um, uh, treasure hunting novel. And um, and another film based on that novel series is actually actually coming out in uh, October. We also have John Woo's The Crossing Part 2 coming at the end of this month. Um, uh, what else? December will be another big period with a lot of big films. Uh, Hawaii has a few films and things like that. So um, definitely, government is definitely not worried about domestic uh, film market share at the moment. Um, in fact, I think they, they should probably be celebrating at the moment. Um, Paul, um, what do you think? China, big big market, um, um, another, another high. Um, any thoughts about this? Well, yeah, anytime you have record-breaking movies, my first question is, all right, how much did they jack up the ticket price, right? 
because this is always the thing, right? It's it's always the the the, the next summer uh, ticket prices go up by a certain amount, and then therefore you have a film that's breaking records on some technical statistical level. But in terms of things like scale, they're they're still not really maybe doing uh, as much business as, as they like to put forward. I am cu- I'm, I'm curious though because the top film right now for, for foreign films is um, Fast and Furious 7. And you did mention that this is, you know, this does have China money in it. And I haven't seen this yet, so I don't want you to spoil it for me. But I mean, how does this movie and, and this as a series fly in China? Because I'm quite surprised that it's beaten out Avengers, um, Age of Ultron. I mean, that's not a perfect movie, but I would think that Avengers as a series, you know, a Marvel series would be a bigger draw just on in terms of the brand fast and furious is basically about a bunch of criminals so how do they how do they get around some of the sarfed regulations i guess and how does that become the top film i'm wondering well actually um a movie like fast and furious 7 actually has a wider demographic appeal than avengers because um a film a film like avengers appeal to younger a younger audience in china you know people who are more accepting of Superheroes and fantasy films, and 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 um, um, these type of films, uh, an older audience would not be familiar at all with the Marvel superheroes. They would see and go, "Iron Man, what's that? And why is that green thing running around?" And yeah, but I mean, it's it's, it's not, it doesn't have that appeal to the older audience. But it's they're like both in, they're both part of a franchise, right? I mean, so it's it's you've got six other films that have come before Fast and Furious Seven. My assumption is is that anybody going to see Avengers has already seen Avengers one, has seen Iron, you know, maybe at least one of the Iron Mans and one of the Thors, maybe not Captain America, but my, my assumption is, is that this is going to be a property that people have heard about. They know it's going to be a big budget Hollywood spectacle, um, and you know, Fast and Furious, it's criminals riding around in cars, right? I mean, by extension, well, it's 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 just another. You know, it's like um, initial D, but on overdrive, right? Well, but actually, starting in in the fifth film, they started working for the good guys. Well, starting Fast I, Five, they started working for the good guys, so it was okay because that, they always catch the bad guys. There's a very fine line. Yeah. They're still doing criminal stuff. I mean, well, on. the thing is, is the thing is, foreign films, um, um, China is generally more lenient in terms of crime taking place overseas mm. Mm. um for example a fast and furious film would never be able to shoot uh, at least at least a film at least a scene um involving illegal street racing would never be shot in china um, um but the fast and furious um model which is you know big cars big action scenes that has a wider wider demographic a wider age appeal than uh, than a fantasy film like the avengers it's just mm. that simple um it's not really a matter of branding um like I said, the younger audience would be more familiar with the Avengers, the Marvel brand. The older audience would have no idea what it is. But then Fast and Furious 7 or the Fast and Furious franchise, it's, an, it's just they see it. They see, oh, it's cars and, you know, Americans and Americans. And they don't feel like they, they would have to see. the. Actually, the Fast and Furious franchise is less reliant on the previous films than, say, Avengers, than the Marvel Studios films. Even though they do, they do connect in a way. But um, um, I think for Chinese audiences, at least you get the middle-aged male audience. A middle-aged male audience would not go see an Avenger film, um, but they would go see Fast and Furious Seven. Hmm. That's that's the difference. Interesting, interesting dynamics. And and you were talking about actually uh, ticket inflation and stuff, but actually interestingly, both the top five domestic and the top five foreign films were both were all released in 3D. So they. All the actually they had similar ticket prices because they were all released in 3D and they all had 3D inflation. So it's a matter of actually emissions more than the ticket prices. Well, but 3D is already inflated, right? I mean that's 3D is inflated. So so all ten, all five top five domestic films and top five foreign films have the same 3D inflation. So um, you were talking about premium prices, and all ten films actually had premium. Prices. Right, but if we're go- if we're going back in time to compare with you know prior years what we're seeing is like you know the same in the states when ticket prices go up or when there's a massive boost because of you know uh, things being thrust into 3d in on more screens than say 2d that's a that's a massive bit of inflation 
Um, I I think yes, there is inflation, but it is it is not massive enough that it undermines like the emission number on these films. Mm. For example, Fast and Furious. I think we're talking like like I don't know, like twenty. 25 30 million emissions because right. you know average average film average ticket price runs about 35 renminbi we talk about 2.43 billion renminbi um divided by 35 that is like yeah but i mean if you're comparing to again like 2004 numbers i think that's a significant kind of jump up right because i think I, emission it's, number it's 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 almost doubling the ticket price I, I, is it the same is it the same for 3d and in on China screens, because in Hong Kong screens, it's it's almost double. Uh, and if you go to a matinee, it's 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 even more than that. Uh, if you go to a matinee 2D <clears> show versus a, a, a prime time 3D show, it's more than double the price. No, ticketing ticketing in China is a little more complicated because um, a lot of online ticketing platform has like discounts, and there are all sorts of discounts. And if you want to compare about ten years ago, actually, ticket movie going back. 10 years ago was not that cheap either. Movie going has never been that cheap in China. Um, it was always considered a middle class activity and in fact it's actually becoming cheaper for second and third tier city uh, people to go to the films because of these these online ticketing platform offering you know discounted tickets and member discounts and things like that. So so emissions are actually also jumped up significantly. Uh, it's not just the the the, the ticket um, the um, the uh, revenue. So we'll talk about that actually in a few minutes. When we talk about records, uh, monster hunt breaking records. All right. Well, what this says to me is that with the box office up by so much and the market. On very shaky ground. If you've got money to invest in China, you might want to think about uh, putting it into production if you can, rather than in the stock market. All right. Um, so as promised, um, since we're talking about Monster Hunt this week, it did open last week here uh, in 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 China, and it has broken really just just a crazy amount of records. Just um, kind of try and follow me here. All right. Um, the 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 um, film which cost. 350 million RMB to make. That's about 56.4 million dollars uh, US dollars. Um, on Thursday, it broke the best opening day um, uh, record for a local film. Um, with um, sorry, let me look at numbers here. So it, it set the new record for the best single day, uh, best opening day ever for a local film with 171 million RMB. That's uh, twenty-seven point five million. Um, um, by our estimates, or by my own estimates, that's four point four two million emissions on a single day for a film. In Korea, that's the second highest grossing local film this year already. Four point four two million emissions. Um, so that tells you really how huge this market has been. Uh, is becoming. Um, anyway, the. Uh, the the previous record holder for that it was a uh, Monkey King, which was 121 million RMB on its opening day. So uh, Monster Hunt beat it by 50 million. Um, anyway, and on Saturday it actually set the new single day revenue record for a local film uh, with 181 million RMB. Now it wasn't actually just Monster Hunt that was dominating the market. You also have a superhero spoof film named Jambing Man. Um, which is a directorial debut of a variety host um, called Dapan. You might know him if you watch the Conan O'Brien show because this is the the, the show host who ripped off Conan O'Brien's uh, opening sequence and got called out on the talk show for it. And the Conan O'Brien people ended up making a new intro for him. I think you look all this up on the internet. But anyway, this is his directorial debut. And the film actually opened directly against... Um, Monster Hunt on Friday, and that film made, um, uh, looking here, uh, it made, sorry, um, 427 million RMB, um, over three days, uh, between Friday and Saturday from approximately 12.9 million emissions. Um, again, the South Korea uh, context, that is the second highest grossing South Korean film ever. 12.9 million emissions. Um, so, so that kind of gives you an idea. Uh, you know, this film made it in three days. On Friday, it set the new record for the biggest 2D local film opening of all time, opening day, with 133 million. 
And it also set the single-day 2D local film record on Saturday with 150 million RMB. Um, so um, it ha- actually had Jane Bing Man actually had a significantly higher emissions than Monster Hunt because it was released in 2D and had a had an average ticket uh, lower average ticket price. Um, but anyway, the Jane Bing Man also cost only 50 million RMB to produce, so it's already making a huge profit as opposed to Monster Hunt, which is actually hasn't gone to to the break even point yet even after a week it's open because it costs so much money to make um thanks to these two films and also the success of a local animation film called monkey king hero is back which is now the single highest grossing animated film in chinese history at least in uh, locally produced animated film in chinese history um um the um weekly box office revenue um, was 1.76 billion RMB from 51.4 million emissions. That is a record uh, for the biggest week uh, in, in Chinese cinema history. On Saturday, the total box office revenue, uh, we're talking about Saturday, July um, July 19th. Sorry, so I, I didn't realize this. I forgot the show comes out later. But yeah, on July 19th, um, the total box office revenue in all of China was 435 million RMB from 9.6 million emissions. That's the official reg- uh, official data, by the way. That is the sing- biggest single day ever in Chinese history. Um, so, like again, uh, going back to the context I, I used uh, earlier in 2004, the total box office revenue um, um, for the entire year of 2004 was 1.5 million or uh, 1.5 billion RMB. So to have um 1.7 to 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 have a single week's box office beat that um just 11 years later um kind of shows the 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 enormous growth um that is happening in China. Um so yeah, uh, Monster Hunt is is now has as of today, we're talking about the 21st when we're recording, it's already made 776 million RMB. Um that's about 110 million US dollars already. So we're talking so Monster Hunt has made in a week I think more than uh Mad Max did in North America. Um yeah, just 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 in so this is what we're talking about Paul, just earlier um emissions and taking inflation. Um just the growth of the market is so is so astonishing that that inflation and all that those those other um, um, uh, external circumstances don't really apply to China anymore. It's just, or you can say the conclusion is that it is growing and it is growing big. Like, I don't know what's a metaphor here. It is growing big the way the Ant Man grows small. I don't know. That's, that's <laughs> okay, a metaphor for next time maybe. But it, I, I think the real question here is. You know what's causing the the growth? Is it more people moving into the middle class? Is it because bigger and better cinemas are being built that are more welcoming? Um, you know, the I, I know that the, the the couple times I've been across the border to the mainland, I remember going to one cinema that was just horrendous. But then we went to one of the newer cinemas, um, you know, a couple years ago. Uh, what did we watch? Uh, the Kung Fu Panda Two. And it was a very pleasant experience, you know, stadium seating, people were, you know, they, they had the proper etiquette in the theater. Um, so is it is it that the culture of cinema has changed and is drawing more people out to do it, to be in the air conditioning as something to do with a family, this kind of thing? Or is it that you think that people just have more disposable income and are looking for outings and movies are one of the things they're choosing? Couple of couple of um, um, factors actually. Um, you know, major cities like Shanghai and Beijing and and actually the Guangdong province, they've always been huge uh, movie going areas, right? Um, what actually has boosted this this huge increase in box office and popularity of movie going? Actually, first you have the rapid expansion of screens. Um, a lot of movie companies they see the uh, the cinema, the film industry growing, and they're investing more in cinemas. A lot of film companies also invest in cinemas, um, and and most importantly, they're expanding into these 
second, third, fourth tier cities. So these third, fourth tier cities where they used to have no cinema, or they used to have these these really run down cinemas, are now getting fancy new multiplexes. Um, IMAX operates 219 screens across China already, and they're rap again also building more. Um, so you can these premium cinema experience in smaller cities where I mean we're talking still talk about two three four million uh, uh, population per city. Um, China's a lot of people, so um, uh, it's just making these these new multiplexes in malls and and the growing middle class and even the younger people with you know smartphones it's easier for them to to buy tickets for movies now. And like I said earlier, there are a lot more discounts via Groupons or or online. Uh, ticketing platform it's just getting easier to watch a film in the big screen and it's becoming more of a social activity in the sense that you don't watch these big movies you have nothing it's, it's like a peer pressure thing you have nothing to talk about with other people and um again you know uh for for hollywood films it's about giving you like the big screen experience right it's about giving you the 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 spectacle um for local films it's about being hip it's about seeing the latest films and be able to talk about it on social media or idols uh you have the biggest the new idols who are uh, starring films and the, the young fans go and watch them just like tiny times and uh forever young and um uh, things like that so it's just all these new factors just growing the growing pop culture in china uh, I guess the qualification of or the, the, the the expansion of pop culture and the expansion of cinema and films in the pop culture world I mean films were in China they were popular but they were never actually a bigger part of pop culture than say music or even TV now films um, you have kind of this this pop culture entering the film world or film world expanding its presence in the pop culture of China so it's kind of just one of those things that it just makes it easier for people to go watch movies and more reasons for go, people to go watch films yeah it's interesting I think that the social aspects um I think there's probably a lot of potential there for some academics to go in and do some in-depth research. Because when you think about what has happened in the past decade, you know, this cultural change flies in the face of pirate culture, of the downloading culture. I mean, you still have platforms like La TV and the PPS app that have, you know, movies on there that maybe shouldn't be on there. Uh, this is a thing that I've always questioned. And yet you still see this massive growth. So people are, at least to some extent, they are shunning that previous culture that used to exist. I mean, I remember a decade ago going, you go to Shenzhen, and every mall has dozens of, you know, pirate DVD shops. Those are pretty much gone now. And a lot of it started to move over to the streaming side of things. But I think even that has started to come under more and more regulation. And... But at the same time, you've got people who are legitimately going out for the theater experience. And I think it does point to some of the social things that you brought up. You know, they, will, they need to be seen. It's, it's part of the middle class experience. It's, it's part of the experience of belonging, belonging. The question is, how long will that last? You know, because this is something that's been on the decline in, um, in Western civilization to some extent, right? I mean, the, the cinema going experience isn't what it once was. In, in the States. I mean, movies are bigger, they're making more money than ever, but at the same time, I think more and more people are less enthused about the, you know, going out to the, to the movie as, a, as, a, as an experience. You always talk about, you know, the, the cost of things like popcorn and soda, especially if you've got a large family. More and more people are choosing the streaming options at home now. Uh, legitimate streaming options, too. I mean, through, you know, your, your iTunes and your Netflixes and these kinds of things. So I think it's interesting to see this kind of growth fly in the face of what was once the pirate culture that was the dominant model for media consumption in China. The pirate culture is still very big, actually, because there are still many films that you can't watch um, legitimately in China. And, you know, film buffs are actually biggest piraters in China because they have the biggest thirst for other films, for alternative films, and they have the least, you know, they have no way to get these alternative films other than turning to um, uh, piracy. Um, and that's kind of ironic, right? Yeah. But, um, but when you talk, talk, when you talk about, about the choice of access, when you do have access, what you see here, 
with these numbers, with these statistics, is you know a, a group of middle class people who are choosing to go out and and you know consume through these legitimate forms rather than taking the option that's probably there for a lot of them um, to go the illegitimate route. It's not just the middle class. I mean, like I said earlier, it's also the young people. Um, young people, not necessarily disposable income, but they choose to spend their income on on films. Well, dude, it's um, got to be disposable income, or they wouldn't have oh, any yeah, money well, to buy oh, tickets. Sorry, yeah. but yes, yes, but you know, they're they choosing but to spend. I, I choose not to eat today. I'm gonna well, go watch a movie. For example, they could be spending money on clothes, whatever, right? Instead, they're spending money on other recreational activities, yeah. but um. Uh, also, actually, um, it's widely talked about that the growing, actually, the, the online video platform market is also growing, um, expanding rapidly. We're talking about legitimate um, 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 streaming market. And um, it's been talked about the last two or three years that actually consumers, if you offer them the right price, there are actually more people willing to pay for legitimate streaming films in China than you think. For example, if you set it at 5 RMB a movie or if you set a membership that's at 5 RMB or 10 RMB a month, people are more willing to actually pay. So you see these um, video platforms like iQIYI and Youku and Le TV growing. Le TV is even expanded to Hong Kong. Um, they're trying their hand in Hong Kong um, because they are seeing a trend where people are more willing to pay money for legitimate streaming options. Yeah, and I mean, th we saw the same thing happen in the music industry with streaming music and Napster and iTunes and all that mess, you know, back at the turn of the millennium. So, it, oh, for it some makes sense. for some reason, for some reason, music is never gonna that that part of uh, music revolution is now never gonna happen in China because the you know album sales or selling music in China is virtually dead. It's all about. Um, it's all about you know spokesperson, uh, you know doing ads and and doing live shows and t television appearances. Now there's no more music market in China. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've opined for a great length about the, the rise of the China box office and the records that Monster Hunt has come in and and smashed. So I think uh, we'll move on to our final news story this week. Back here home at Hong Kong about the. Uh, what is the Hong Kong Scene Fan Summer International Film Festival? That's a mouthful, so I know. please explain. Yes, it used to be the Hong Kong Summer International Film Festival, which is a summer spin-off of the Hong Kong International Film Festival, now to fit with their little Cinefan and Cinefan Club. Um, they now rebrand it as the Cinefan Summer International Film Festival. I don't know why they had to do that. But anyway, it is the Summer International Film Festival time, and they have um, finally um, announced their lineup for this year. Um, Ho Xiao Shen's The Assassin, which won the Best Director Prize in Cannes this year, um, will be opening the festival. Um, the film officially opens here in theaters on the 27th of August, but um, the film will have its Hong Kong premiere on the 11th with director Ho Xiao Shen um, attending both the screening on the 11th and the 12th. Uh, now on the 12th, he, the director will be giving a so master class, but of course it's useless if you don't speak Mandarin, because you know that is the language he was speaking. Um, this year's closing film will be Woody Allen's *Irrational Man*, which uh, also played at the Cannes Film Festival. So Cannes, Cannes films all around in this year's festival. Um, last year, Woody Allen's uh, *Magic in the Moonlight* was actually the opening film, and both the opening film and the closing film this year are distributed locally by Golden Seed. Um, that's pretty much the usual. Um, anyway, we talk about Asian films. So there, in addition to uh, the Assassin, there's also Ringo Lam's Wow City, which will have a gala screening. Uh, I think on the third day of the festival, but well, a week before its official theatrical release here in Hong Kong. Um, there are also six six um, um, Asian titles. Um, you have Shio Sono's Love and Peace, uh, Takeshi Miike's Yakuza Apocalypse. Um, the hit Japanese youth comedy Flying Colors, um, Yoshihiro Nakamura's Prophecy, which is a, kind of a it was a moderate hit early in the year, is a crime film, and you have two Bollywood films, PK from the director of Free Idiots and Piku, which was a, actually a surprise hit in India earlier this year. Um, there's also a retrospective on uh, director Timing Liang, um, the Malaysian-born filmmaker who's had a very big career in Taiwan. 
there'll be four of his films plus two new two short films um, from him, um, and there will be the screening of A Touch of Zen, the, the new restored version of King Hu's uh, classic wuxia films. Um, that will, that three hour film will have also a uh, screening here in Hong Kong. And uh, if you have a, if you have not watched Shunji Ey's Love Letter, now is your chance. Watch it on the big screen in thirty five millimeter film. Um, that will be screening at the Science Museum during the festival. Uh, Paul, you did you ever attend the the Summer Film Festival? No, I did not. I think I think I might have bowed out of festival going altogether before that really took off in full. And uh, these days, my as I've mentioned before, my festival days are well behind me. And to be honest, I kind of prefer going with a general audience than with a festival audience. That's just me. But in Hong Kong, we we all just you know audiences. But I can see what you're talking about. I mean, actually, last year um, there was a very weak Asian lineup, and I actually didn't watch anything at the festival last year. So I'm very happy they brought back Asian films this year. Even though I won't, I'll be waiting for the 27th for Ho Shao Shen to open in general release instead of um, instead of watching it with the yeah. Crowd. I mean, I'm excited for Wild City, but I'm I'd much rather watch it in general release than. Yeah, as part of the festival. You, you mean you don't want to see Louis Koo for the fifth time in person this year? Uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> I, I love the Cooster. I think he's great, but I, I don't need to see celebrities. I mean, I know it's a... If if they're going to do... You know, sometimes I like... If they're going to do a talk after the film, that's kind of attractive, but these days, I don't know. It's just not enough for me anymore. Maybe I'm old and, and crotchety. Um, but uh, I, I'm still hopeful that one day... We will get together with that guy over there at the, uh, you know, who that that webmaster over at the Love HK Film site, and we'll create the uh, Love HK Film Festival. <laughs> yeah, it might be just one film <laughs> on a Friday night or something. Uh, I can dream. So yeah, uh, so that's it. That's it for news this week. Uh, finally, Paul, you get to talk about monster hunt yes so we'll take a short musical interlude after all that wondrous news thank you kevin and we'll be back to talk monster hunt Right, and we're back. Our film this week, Monster Hunt, from director Raman Hui, who you might know from quite a few animated features. He's had a lot of work through DreamWorks. He's directed films like, I think he did Shrek 3, and he's worked as an animator on the original Shrek. He's worked on things like Ants, um, Kung Fu Panda, The Secrets of the Furious Five spinoff, um, he's worked on uh, Puss in Boots and the short film uh, Puss in Boots, The Three Diablos. And here he has come back to Hong Kong and he is working on uh, this film, Monster Hunt. So before I get too deep into Monster Hunt itself, let me talk a little bit uh, about the synopsis. So this is a fantasy world where monsters and humans exist together, with humans having forced monsters into exile, into their into a sort of a land of their own, the monster hierarchy is thrown into disarray as the monster king dies and a power struggle ensues. Forced to flee into human lands, a pregnant consort of the previous monster king tries to find refuge in a human village. After an encounter with a royal monster hunter forces her to impregnate a young village leader named Tianyin, played by Jing Boran, um, so that he might protect her egg, uh, she, he is then forced to flee. Um, and now the pregnant Tinian flees as both monsters and hunters are trying to chase him down. And he is forced to work with a neophyte hunter named Z, uh, Xiaonan, played by Bai Bai He. When the egg finally hatches, uh, he, becomes, uh, he becomes torn between protecting the newborn 
uh, baby named Wuba and turning it in for a reward to the Monster Hunting Bureau. So that kind of sets up um, the, the, the preliminary tension for the film. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a chase film. You've kind of seen this story before. This is sort of a very common story that you can find as a narrative throughout many Hong Kong films and, of course, many films from you know, other countries. There's a, there's a, a rival nation. There's a power struggle. There's a royal heir that you know snuck out at the last minute, and they're trying to track him down to prevent this royal heir from coming back and, you know, restoring the nation or taking power or doing whatever. And usually there's some protectors involved, and you know, chase sequences happen and this kind of a thing. The um, cinematography here is really great. Uh, I think the the film looks colorful. It looks beautiful. It's very well shot. You've got quite a few great cameos and supporting roles from actors both from mainland China and from Hong Kong. Notable Hong Kong appearances include Eric Zhang, uh, Sandra Ng, and Tang Wei uh, of, of note. Uh, let's see, also uh, Yao Chen uh, shows up for a, a somewhat funny role. And the action work is quite good. There's quite a few fight scenes that take place. The little bit of wire work, some of it's not always as crisp and tight as it could be, but for the most part, a lot of the fight sequences are, are really, really good. One of the biggest problems I have with this film, though, is that the animation doesn't always fit with the live action. It doesn't feel like, you know, these two worlds coexist necessarily together. And there were times when I was wondering if this film would have worked better as a fully animated piece, you know, like a Madagascar, like a Kung Fu Panda where the humans were animated as well as the monsters that are animated. Now, they do some shortcuts. So one of the things the monsters do is they can uh, take human skin and wear it. So you've got a little bit of sort of, um, uh, what's the Donnie Yen movie? Painted skin. Uh, painted skin. Yeah, you've got a little bit of painted skin action going on here at times. And they use this as a, you know, as a, as a means to get away from always having animated monsters on the screen. And that works to some extent. So we get more face time with actors that we, that we know and like, and it, I'm sure that it cuts down on the cost tremendously. Had this entire film been an animated film, who knows uh, if it would have been much more expensive than the current budget that, that it's on right now. But um, I'm sure that it would have been uh, problematic for, you know, trying to do it fully animated. Yeah, something I didn't mention before. The film's original budget was actually 200 million RMB. Um, as I mentioned before, the total budget got boosted up to 350 million because they actually had to reshoot the entire film. And this was uh, because of a certain actor? Yes, because uh, the original uh, actor was actually Kai Ko, uh, the Taiwan actor who was in uh, You're the Apple of My Eye. They completed production and then he was caught on a drug bus along with JC Chan. So to release the film, Edgo essentially had to spend three months essentially reshooting the entire film, uh, most of the film actually, with a new star. And uh, the, the, the details of that shit actually came out this past week when the, after the film opened. And the new star, Jim Boron, actually didn't have, couldn't do anything new. Instead, he had to match all of Kaiko's actions because to match the uh, existing special effects. Yeah. Um, so, so to to do those that three month remake actually nearly doubled the the budget of the film. So actually, by with that budget, Paul, I think I think you could have made a fully animated film. Yeah, perhaps. And it's interesting too because I I'm going to talk about Jing Boran in, in in a minute, and you know I'm I'm wondering if if that footage is still out there, you know, if that might end up on a special edition in five or ten years. Sort of like the you know the test footage with I think what is it Eric Stoltz who did uh, the Marty McFly uh, original shots in Back to the Future that uh, they released as a uh, special edition on on a recent release. So it'd be very interesting I think if they could, if we could see some of that footage at some point in the future. But yeah, so one one of the big stopgaps for me was the fact that I didn't think that the animation always looked like it fit on screen with the, with the live action. But I was able to move beyond that. Uh, the monsters themselves, I think, were interesting, but I wasn't really given enough of, of the monster culture. 
I really wanted to know more about the monster culture. There's there's obviously politics that go that go on in the monster culture. I mean, they they give us narration to talk about, you know, this power struggle and this hierarchy. And there are issues with with aspects of, you know, consumption, you know, so monsters eat humans except when they don't want to and they decide not to. And you've got different forms of the monsters. So you've got these really big brutes that have forearms. You've got these smaller athletic ones that look somewhat different. You've got ones that have sort of a fish-like tail. Um, you've got ones that are like little frogs. And then you've got some that are just kind of unique on their own. And these are represented. So, for example, the, they're the smaller athletic one is represented through one character. The fish-like one is represented through another character. And then finally, you've got the princeling, um, Wuba, who's kind of a unique thing all to himself, I guess. Or maybe that's what babies, you know, the, the baby monsters look like. It's not really clear if they're all different species of monsters or they transform over time into, you know, different variants. I just, I thought that they could have done more. They could have explored more of that. And maybe if they do further films, uh, obviously this one is on track to be successful and uh, it probably would if they didn't have to do the reshoots it'd probably be um, more successful than it than it's actually gonna end up being which is a shame but I'm guessing we'll get more of these if it's doing as well as it as, as all the numbers say the designs themselves I think are okay a few are kind of evocative of Shrek in terms of some of the appendages that are designed Wuba the sort of the, the central prince baby character is not very cute though uh, I just what didn't find it very cute and appealing and maybe that's part of the point that you're not supposed to find cute and appealing that much it's kind of terrifying in in some ways especially when it smiles it's got like these two vampire teeth but the baby it has a baby's laugh as the audio and that kind of helps it, it, it kind of builds a somewhat cute-like connection with the character at times. The character also kind of transforms, and how can I put this? It's kind of phallic <laughs> at times. <laughs> I don't know if you got that same impression, Kevin, <laughs> when you saw it, but there's a couple times when it, he kind of recedes into himself like a turtle, and I'm thinking, really? That's the design you want to show us? Because that looks kind of like something else. And yeah, it's it's probably easy too to look at comparisons between this character and the last time a Hong Kong China film tried to create a cutesy style uh, animated character, and w so there's you could probably do some comparisons with this in CJ Seven. Will this be more successful than CJ Seven? I mean, we're gonna have to it wait and see. It already is. It already you know? is. Um, but CJ Seven did get an animated spinoff, right? I mean, it, it became a a series unto itself, if I remember correctly. Well, yeah, but now in China, we're at the age of IP, where everything is about expanding beyond the original property. Yeah. We talk about merchandising and series, and IP is the, the, the key, the buzzword this last two years in China. So with the success of Monster Hunt, yeah, we're going to be seeing a lot of Wuba in different different mm. forms now. Yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe Wuba, because of the cute and terrible nature of it, uh maybe that will that that's something that appeals to to children this is there's a joke i think there, there's a joke in uh, ant-man we'll talk about next time that's also kind of referencing kids liking sort of ugly things and perhaps that's the trend now i don't know uh my daughter hasn't really picked up on that yet but maybe she will the uh designs though i think yeah the, the, I, I like the designs. The main problem I have is the animation style just doesn't seem to mesh very well with, with a lot of the live action. Sometimes, too, I think the film tries a bit too hard. It's not sure what it wants to be. They throw a musical number in there, which is okay. It's no nothing great in terms of you know the song itself. It didn't make me want to rush out and buy the soundtrack. But that was the only, you know real musical number that they had per se they, they kind of revisited a bit later on and i guess that's the thing you know it's like you know, we looked at minions last time you have an animated show with cutesy characters and you got to get them singing and dancing at some point 
Um, but I, I felt that if they really wanted to go the musical route, go full-on musical. Don't just give me one number. Give me you know two or three numbers, so then I've got at least maybe one or two of the songs that really take and really want me to get out to buy the soundtrack. The other issue with this film is it's really dark at times. And I mean really dark. I got the impression that this was a film they were trying to aim at the younger, you know, the, the, the pre-teen subset for, for kids as a primary demographic. And I think I may have been wrong in that, or they made some very interesting choices that would, you know, make me think twice about bringing my little one uh, to see this. Because the, the, you've got first issues of monsters eating humans. So the monsters are known for eating humans. That's one of the big divisive points. There are humans who eat the monsters in, in, in this context too. So you've got sort of this cross-species kind of consumption that happens. There's an animal market scene too, a little bit later in the film where they're in, you know, kind of an animal market, which I guess you kind of expect to see. I mean, we go to the market all the time and you see, of course, you can see pig parts hanging and you can see uh, fish, you know, kind of strewn open, freshly, uh, freshly cut open. And I guess that kind of stuff is normal, but in this market, they're showing other things too, like cats and dogs and and this has been a point of controversy, I know, in, in some Chinese news circles of late because of, I think they had a dog festival a month or so ago. And that's a point that's somewhat still controversial as China sort of progresses forward and takes on more uh, westernized values when it comes to domestication of animals. But I thought for a movie that's going to be targeted at kids, that scene where they're kind of showing all this alleyway with all these things hanging up, that was kind of hard to take even for me. But I'm guessing they expect that this is commonplace, maybe, for, you know, kids in China, kids in Hong Kong. So maybe it's not actually that gruesome. Maybe that's just my own Western sensibilities kind of kicking in. And there's some scenes in a, in a chef's kitchen. They try to play for laughs, but still, it's still kind of gruesome at times. So I'm kind of like scratching my head going, you know, are you cr trying to go for... Shrek here? Are you trying to go for the audience who would go see Shrek? Or are you trying to create something that's more adult um, but still trying to be cutesy with it? So I was a bit confused uh, in, in, in a few points and a bit surprised at how dark this film kind of actually got. Still enjoyable. I really enjoyed performances by most of the cast. I think that uh, Bye Bye Her good and cute as always here she's kind of like you know this sassy level two monster hunter here too is another aspect of the film i wanted to see more about so the monster hunters get levels based on how many monsters they defeat or capture and they get these coins that represent the levels and as you know sort of an ex D, &D player i can relate to you know levels and this kind of thing pretty well i think people play maybe the monster hunter game series will you know understand the nature of leveling as well so that's a very sort of common language that's uh, used visually here, but they don't really get that deep into it. And there's one scene where there's another monster hunter. He's apparently captured a couple monsters, and there are a bunch of other monsters dancing around him. I'm thinking, well, he could become like a level 20 right there, just capture all, like, all those guys. But, you know, that would probably derail the musical number. So they didn't, they didn't want to go in that direction. But I do like Bye Bye Huh as an actress. I think she's cute, and she works well here. Uh, Jing Boran was the weak link for me. And it's interesting that you're saying that he basically just had to mimic, you know, the movements of his predecessor. Maybe that was part of the problem. But I really did not feel a strong connection with him as sort of the lead, the leading man, if you will. And they really do kind of play, I mean, their overall relationship, I did think they had a chemistry. I just didn't care much about his character. I found his character to be uh, a bit passive and also to be a bit, I don't know, uninteresting over, for the most part. I mean, he's got sort of this very typical backstory um, kind of thing that we've seen where his dad was is sort of an ex-monster hunter and uh, there's this event that happened in his life. They do try to throw in a few surprises, which work okay, but his overall relationship with Bye Bye Huh's character 
is very evocative of my sassy girl. Uh, it's really that exact arc archetype where she's kind of sassy and bossy, but tries to be cutesy about it at times. And he is really very passive and, you know, he gets pregnant. So he kind of takes on this feminine role and uh, they, they make a few gags about breastfeeding uh, Wuba. And of course, it's a monster, so it doesn't want milk, it wants blood. And it's still kind of gruesome, I'm thinking. You know, this again, is this something we want four, five, six, seven, eight year olds uh, to be watching? Are they going to find this funny? Are they going to, you know, be scratching their head? How are parents going to be, you know, talking about this with their little ones? I know I'm overthinking this totally from a parent's perspective. But overall, um, I, I think the film has a beautiful look. It's got great action. I can get past the, you know, the the the, the moments when I'm taken out of the film because of the CG and the live action not meshing up. But I want to know more about it. I want to see this world expand. I'm interested to see where it goes from here. It's obviously set up for further storytelling. There is a moment at the end where I do think there's a bit that's unfinished so there's a plot line with the Eric Tsang and Sandra M character that just kind of ends on a very strange note because something happens afterwards that makes where they leave those two characters kind of hanging at just not seem to make a lot of sense to me you you think they'd get a final scene beyond that last scene that we see but I, I'd welcome a sequel, um, so I'm glad the film's doing well. I'd like to see it become a success. I know the director has said his goal is to create a new intellectual property, a new kind of monster mythology that's you know, centered in Chinese film. And I think this is a good start to that, despite some of my nitpicks at it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more of it. Uh, Kevin, did you, what did you think of the, of the overall designs and and uh, you know the, the 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 darkness of it did do you have did you did any of that come across to you when you when you watched it yeah um actually the the scene with the kitchen um and and actually that's i think that was an added scene in the reshoot because uh uh i've heard that the reshoots added tanwei and yao chen who played the chef in mm. the, these kitchen scenes um, so that was actually a new sequence in in the, in the new version of the film. But you're right. I think the whole eating monster aspect of the film and some of it's a bit dark. But I think Asian family films tend to be a little more dark anyway. They tend to be a little more violent. Um, so for me, it didn't really like it didn't shock me or anything. Mm. Um, maybe but, I'm, maybe I'm just too used to Disney and DreamWorks. <laughs> Maybe so, but even you know, let I me mean, look at look at the Pixar film Inside Out. That's very PG. It's not a G film. It's not really a G film or uh, Monsters. You know, Monsters Inc. Uh, the Monster University. Those are also monsters. Um, and the whole thing is about scaring kids. So yeah, but uh, the monsters are not eating people, and the people well, sure. are not eating monsters. Well, sure, yes, the violence is it's a little much. Um, and and that being said, I mean, there's no. I mean, they imply that monsters eat people. They don't actually show anything that gruesome. But there is a scene where they kind of, they actually do kind of shish kebab one monster. <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, they just did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's definitely a film to see, uh, especially because it's making all these waves. I just say, if you've got kids, don't, maybe watch it first before you show it to your kids because yeah. there, there's some things in there that give me pause and so I, I'd say you know be sure you see it first before you you get the idea that okay this is a you know by the guy who made Shrek so it must be Shrek friendly because I'd say it's not quite there if teenagers no problem you know you got a 13 year old no problem but if you got somebody maybe 10 or younger um, there might be some stuff here that that you'd want to you know watch with them and 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 at least see it first before you um, give them a go at it. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more.
You have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. We are on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast, or email eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us over on Facebook. Uh, look us up there. Drop us a line. Send us an email. Let us lo- let us know if you like the show, if you don't like the show, if there's some aspect of a movie you want to tell us about, or even, you know, you want to send us a short review of your own, something you thought about a movie, we might just talk about it right here on the show. I do urge you to follow Kevin and all his writings and daily musings and what he's doing. So, Kevin, where can people find more about you and what you're doing? Um, you can follow me over at um, Film Business Asia, www.filmbiz.asia for your daily news feed um, on Asian cinema. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at The Golden Rock. That's one word, The Golden Rock. Um, you can email me at Kevin at filmbiz.asia. And yeah, that's that's about it. All right. So there you have it. I do urge you to follow Kevin. Keep up with what he's doing because he's writing and doing important film stuff. Next <laughs> show, episode 169, The Man That Becomes an Ant. Well, he doesn't become an ant, but he talks to ants, and he gets small. The Ant Man. That'll be our next show. All of that and much more. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, whatever you put in your mouth, don't bite off more than you can chew, and we'll see you next time. Whoopah, whoopah. I mean, see you next week, everybody. Sweet.